I'm Duncan Hilton. This is the Religious Life Podcast. Early on in my formation as a priest, I sensed that something was wrong with church. Around that time, I was also beginning to attend a 12-step fellowship modeled after Alcoholics Anonymous, or AA. The juxtaposition of the two cultures, church and 12-step, unsettled me. In church, I experienced respectable people organizing respectable activities and chatting about respectable topics at coffee hour, all orchestrated by a respectable priest. In contrast, in my 12-step fellowship, I experienced all sorts of people sharing openly about their spiritual struggles and triumph, including letting go of their need for respectability. They laughed, they cursed, they prayed recklessly and regularly, and they shared phone numbers with newcomers. No one was in charge, and no one was on salary. I remained in church and formation for the priesthood, nonetheless. I loved singing hymns, I loved the sacraments, I loved the liturgical year. I loved talking about and worshiping Jesus. And yet, I also knew that when it came to fostering spiritual growth and healing, 12-step fellowship had church beat. Why, I wondered, if these fellowships had their origins in Christian theology and movements, were the cultures so different? Could the culture of church be more like 12-step groups? I quickly realized through reading and talking with other Christians in recovery that others had been asking the same question for decades. The Reverend Sam Shoemaker, an Episcopal priest who helped Bill Wilson develop AA, delivered a speech at the AA 20th Anniversary Conference in 1955 titled, What the Church Has to Learn from Alcoholics Anonymous. In the ensuing decades, many others have wondered the same, enough to fill 25 pages of bibliographic notes in Steve Haynes' 2021 book, Why Can't Church Be More Like an AA Meeting? The book covers the history and theology of AA going back to early 20th century church movements. It also covers contemporary ministry experiments to integrate the 12-step ethos and 12-step practices into church. I spoke with Steve Haynes this week about the question at the heart of his book, can church actually be more like AA? And if so, exactly how? Or is it a fool's errand to try to make church more like AA based on the structural differences between the two groups? including anonymous membership versus public membership, and paid professional leadership versus non-professional decentralized leadership. Haynes is a professor of religious studies at Rhodes College and theologian in residence at Idlewild Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. He's also authored several other books, including The Battle for Bonhoeffer, Debating Discipleship in the Age of Trump, and The Last Segregated Hour, the Memphis Neelands, and the Campaign for Southern Church Desegregation. One thing that stands out to me after speaking with Steve is how he senses that the 12-step movement gives people a taste of what first-century Christian fellowship may have been like. Frank Buchman, one of the Christians who influenced the development of AA, wrote, The Age of Miracles has returned. What if the Age of Miracles really has returned? What if it dawned in 12-step meetings and church basements, and now the challenge isn't just to let the light into the sanctuary, but for people to carry that light inwardly 
and then let it guide them in the formation of new Christian communities. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Steve as much as I did. As always, there are a number of helpful links in my show notes and Substack related to this conversation. You can find links to those at my website, duncanhilton.net. You'll also find information there about online classes and how to join weekday prayer and meditation groups, which meet online at 5.30 and 6 Eastern Time. And finally, my ministries of writing, podcasting, prison chaplaincy, and online teaching are funded by listeners and readers. If you like what you hear, please go to duncanhilton.net and click on the donate button to make a one-time or recurring donation. And now my conversation with Steve Haynes. I welcome to the show Steve Haynes. I'll open us with a prayer. God, we offer this conversation to thee, build with us and with our listeners as thou wilt. Relieve us of the bondage of self, that we may better do thy will. Take away our difficulties, that victory over them may bear witness to those we would help with thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. Um, thank you again, Steve, for joining me on the Religious Life Podcast. I want to start with a little bit about your not just your background, but your the genesis for this book. You you write about how the longer you and your wife attended 12-step meetings on Saturday evenings, the less fulfilling um, Sunday mornings became for you. As yeah. you wrote, there was a disconnect between the informal genuous, genuineness and transparency of Saturday evenings and the fine clothes, polished smiles, and careful choreography of Sunday mornings. It's a beautiful sentence. So for listeners who haven't read your book, could you just share about your journey in recovery and how it made church less satisfying in some ways? Yeah. So let me fill in some gaps that how we came to be at those meetings on Saturday nights. It was 2008. My wife went to treatment for some long deferred trauma from early in her, early in her life. And <clears throat> she stayed for several months. And when she came back, it was recommended that we um, start a therapeutic separation, which we did. And it was also recommended to us that we start attending uh, a meeting called Recovering Couples Anonymous, which we did. And we became very involved. We were very faithful and it became a lifeline for us. It just happened to meet on uh, Saturdays at 5 p.m. for whatever reason. And so that that juxtaposition between Saturday evenings and then we would usually go out with other couples after the meeting. So Saturday night, evening, Saturday night, juxtaposition between that experience, that high, and then Sunday morning just became so difficult to ignore. And our church is like probably many of the churches that your listeners know. People dress up. Everybody's fine. You know some people are struggling, but the reason you know is because of gossip, not because they acknowledge it. Mm. There's not a lot of transparency or authenticity. People are very nice. But there was something missing, and it just became easier and easier to identify what it was. It was that sort of willingness to be, to acknowledge brokenness, to be present in in all one's um, all one's ambiguity and <clears throat> sense of loss and grief and and uh, fear. It just became so difficult to ignore after a while, and that was the really 
the genesis of the book. It's what I write about in the first chapter, like how surely someone else has experienced this. And so yeah. as I started to do research, yes, as it turns out, many people had experienced that over the decades. And so the title of the book, Why Can't Church Be More Like an AA Meeting, not only comes out of my own experience, but it reflects a question that people have been asking probably since the 1940s. Mm. People who had experience in, in both places mm. uh, and, and started to mull over that question. Mm. There are two things I really appreciate about the book, maybe even more, but one, you have 25 pages of bibliographic notes about the history of AA and its ties to the church and people who've been thinking about this question for the last 80 years. And so I just really appreciate the thoroughness. And at the same time, you have some very succinct lists that I love, one of which was you broke down what are the five things that people who are thinking about this question generally think the church can learn from AA. Yeah. So that, And just to list the five for the listeners, people present themselves in their brokenness. People are desperate and in search of transformation. There's an atmosphere of acceptance and belonging. There's informality and a lack of hierarchy. And there's an understanding of human nature is both justified and fallen. Um, yeah. So one of my goals for the the podcast is for folks who may be listening and share that that question, why can't church be more like AA, to that they can hear some of your research and like from your journey writing the book. So I wonder, just going through those five starting with number one, people present themselves in their brokenness. What are ways that yeah. you, in the course of your research, you saw churches trying to incorporate that element of AA? Um, yeah, and maybe well, I don't know the churches, churches do it very well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so one of the things, I arrived at that list after a lot of reading and thinking, mm. and one of the chapters is a an analysis of six memoirs by Christians, professional mm. Christians, I call them, of, of one sort or another who have a sort of crisis and go through, go get into recovery, get into 12-step recovery, and then write about it later on. And they helped me distill that list. Mm. One of the things they point out is this idea of, of brokenness as being the ticket into recovery. Mm. And you can't walk into a 12-step room without acknowledging implicitly that either you're lost or something is wrong. Mm. Unless it's Al-Anon, then maybe you can, for a while <laughs> at least, pretend like it's someone else's problem. You find out eventually, really, it's really not. But it, it is a it is an acknowledgement that things aren't going well. You, you can reach the end of your rope. Obviously, church is not that way. People come to church mm. and they keep up the the charade of everything fine. I talk about step zero being for Christians, step zero precedes even the first step zero being I'm not fine. We have to mm. acknowledge that. So that was the, the starting point. What everybody, all the memoirs that I read started there, that, that idea that if the church is going to resemble AA in any form, it needs to start with this, this change where people are able to acknowledge in a church environment that they're broken if they are or the ways in which they're broken and there's not a compulsion to hide that and there's not stigma around it and there's not fear of revealing things i don't know how i, I haven't figured out how churches get there mm. it's 
it is intriguing when I talk to church groups about this as something that they really identify as being a problem. And mm. typically people will stand up who have been in recovery for a while. And it's a surprise and even a shock to their friends in the church that that they are in recovery. And that's because they haven't been able, it's not been safe to, to admit it in the church family. And, and I think that just proves the point that it's, they're afraid that their particular brand of brokenness will, will not, will be misunderstood or judged or whatever. So I had this experience at the Episcopal Church just recently in Atlanta Mm. where, and I told the pastor, I told the priest this will happen. Uh, I don't know. This is a different kind of church. It happened. People stood up, said, I've been in AA for 30 years and people's necks craned and um, nobody could believe it. Anyway. Mm. Wow. Could you share a little bit about Celebrate Recovery and how they have tried to address this first challenge of presenting yeah. the brokenness? Yeah. Yeah, I talk in, about Celebrate Recovery a lot in the book, and I, I did a lot of visiting of Celebrate Recovery, even going out to California and going to one of their um, multi-day summits. And I have mixed feelings about Celebrate Recovery. I think in some ways they Christianize the 12 steps in ways that are unnecessary. But one of the things they do successfully is get at this brokenness idea so that in Celebrate Recovery, it becomes um, normal to introduce yourself as as somebody who struggles. So the normative introduction would be, I'm Steve, a believer who struggles with alcoholism or with whatever. And um, that's a kind of revolutionary thing, right? Mm. To, to introduce yourself as a human being who struggles in any kind of suburb recovery environment is a big step. So I think we can learn something from celebrate recovery to, to the extent that they've brought that into the church. It's interesting that celebrate recovery is limited to what I would call conservative churches, even, not all evangelical churches, but very few of them are in main, mainline denominations, mm -hmm. churches. And so it's it becomes, its influence has been pretty limited um, denominationally. And that's too bad because there's nothing really analogous to it in mainline churches. We need a movement of our own that will do something similar without some of the baggage that people mm. um, are put off by. Sure. How do you understand that as a scholar of religion? Why is it confined to conservative churches? And how might a mainline version look different, do you think, than Celebrate Recovery? Yeah, it's if you look at Celebrate Recovery, it really has all the earmarks of megachurch evangelicalism. Um, and I noticed this when I went out to the summit at Saddleback Church. It's big screens and music and lots of um, flashy ads and relentless merchandising. And they also do some things that are frankly pretty inimical to the 12-step model, lots of hierarchical leadership models and lots of you can't lead a group unless you're trained. So it's very formal compared to typical 12-step models. Hmm. Um, but there's this desire, everything has to be, every step, every principle has to be linked to a Bible verse. So there's hmm. this kind of proof texting impulse in Celebrate Recovery that I think is unfamiliar and off-putting to a lot of mainliners. 
So I think it's cultural more than anything. Um, and I think it, it could, there, there could be a version of Celebrate Recovery that um, appeals to mainlanders. And there have been churches that have adapted it to their own needs. Mm. Um, the Methodist churches in particular who have found the sort of template useful. So a dinner followed by a kind of uh, worship service, then followed by small group meetings have adapted that part of it, but they don't use the Celebrate Recovery curriculum. So they kind of part ways in terms of the content. So there is some of that I've noticed, and they'll give it a different name. But when you go check it out, it's pretty much Celebrate Recovery just without the name mm. and without some of the more obvious evangelical shibboleths. Mm. How the that second characteristic in the list was in AA, people are desperate and in search of transformation. How, yeah, how did you see in your research some of churches or parachurch organizations trying to capture that spirit from AA? Yeah, I got this originally from Sam Shoemaker, who mm. was an Episcopal priest who was um, partly responsible for the birth of AA in, in New York. He was friends with Bill W. And, and he makes that point very early on in an article called What the Church Can Learn from AA. And he points out that people don't go to AA because it's the right thing to do, or that's what the Joneses are doing, that there's a sense of desperation. And he says, this is the way church should be as well. Again, I don't know that churches have have done this well. Mm. Honestly, it's, it's hard to maintain that sense that church is not a place for the pious and the people who have it together and that church is not just a sort of wellness routine. Mm. It's even, I don't know if you remember from the conference last spring, I was in a conversation with somebody who said that even recovery Sunday, which had been adapted by a lot of Episcopal parishes was now starting to be called recovery and wellness Sunday. Mm. As if to take a little bit of the edge off that this is, let's recovery if you need that, but otherwise it's just mm -hmm. being healthy. So mm. I think there's something in the church that mitigates against that idea that we need transformation. We just need a kind of rounding off of mm. otherwise complete life. Mm. Maybe I'll ask a question differently than for the, the last three in terms of an atmosphere of acceptance and belonging, informality and lack of hierarchy. And understanding of human nature, did you see any examples of folks doing this well in all your research? Yeah, to the extent that groups had formed that were parachurch yeah. alongside the church, if they had, a, had an alternative worship service, maybe on a weeknight and kind of a celebrate recovery like model, or if there was an 11th step meeting that had been born out of a church group. The things that worked tended to be 12-step based, and they tended not to be led by pastors. This is the other thing. Mm. Right? I think that's the kiss of death, honestly, and I say that <laughs> as a pastor. Mm. Because we're trained to lead things, to, to guide, to provide spiritual insight, but that's not what the leader of a 12-step meeting does right? They just witness and guide. And I think this is one of the steps Celebrate Recovery makes. They're very keen on having people who are trained 
to lead in a certain way, be in charge. They're very keen not to have profanity and people get off at certain directions theologically. And I think that's a mistake. So it's tricky to have a church group that's sanctioned by the church, led by pastoral staff that can really carry off this ethos of a 12-step meeting. So there's a bit of maybe they're just natural limits to, to how much it can happen in a church structure, which I talk about informality. And, and what's the other one that goes along with informality? A lack of hierarchy. Yeah. So yeah. those two things, how far can you go with those in, in a church environment, right? Yeah. Uh, churches are inherently formal and many of them hierarchical, right? It's why a meetings meet in the basement on Tuesdays in some ways they don't fit the model. So I'm still optimistic. And, and this book was a way to start a conversation about ways that the church could, could adopt more insights from AA. I, I certainly, I tried to identify as many experiments as I could. Bill Wigmore's experiment with the Sam Shoemaker community and friends of Dr. Bob in Texas was one example, but he's doing that outside the confines of the church. The Episcopal Diocese of Texas has or had a, a yearly recovery retreat, which was church-sponsored, but really was run like an AA retreat, so that mm. it was full of church people, but it was very informal and non-hierarchical and really based on emphasized powerless and so forth. Yeah. So it was churchy because it was at a church camp, but it was very recovery-focused. So. Is it possible to do that in the regular confines of a church life? I don't know. Maybe it takes being a step away mm. or a half step away. I appreciate hearing about your optimism. It sounds like some of it is from observing what happens if groups take a step or a half step away, because my experience as a pastor in trying many different things from 12 step, you know, grists at recovery centers to using 12 steps as part of a small group format in a church, it just, they all, they were beautiful, but they all petered out in their own. Yeah way. And I did wonder about those structural issues because you mentioned in the book, some of the cultural challenges Yeah, and what, let's see, you name an association of church affiliation with respectability, intellectual yeah. sophistication. But then I wondered, is the issue really just that as long as you have paid clergy buildings, endowments that you necessarily need um, that a, a certain culture grows up because people have yeah. to put on public face. It, it sounds like, yeah. how, how did you, it, it sounds like you're optimistic, but not sure that there's a clear solution. Or Yeah. And I, I think I take my own church as the prime example of the problem mm. for me. So it's a large Presbyterian church, urban church, 1400 members, fairly wealthy, most people college educated, sophisticated. I, I think I had my church in mind most of the time when I was writing. Mm. A lot of people in the church in recovery, but not a lot of church people in the church openly in recovery. 
Mm. When I came out as being in recovery several years ago, when I started writing the book, there's a line of people, I think I may have described this in the book, I don't remember, there's a line of people to talk to me after this adult forum. I was like, oh my gosh, what have I done? <laughs> Most of them were telling me about their recovery experience. Mm -hmm. I had known some of them for years. One guy had a business card, said, friend of Bill W. I had mm -hmm. known this guy for years. He had never revealed that to me or anybody else in the church. So it's not a recovery-friendly church. I don't think anybody could make that claim given mm. um, given that experience. But there are lots of people in recovery, and our pastor will preach about recovery occasionally. So that's a paradoxical thing. And we host meetings. So mm. there's some sort of disconnect there. And a guy on staff wrote a book about recovery in the church. <laughs> it's really interesting, and I don't think anybody is embarrassed by the fact that that I'm in recovery and other people are open about the recovery. I just think it's people don't know quite how to do that. I, one of the things I've thought of doing that, that might be workable is, is doing a Sunday school class on the steps, hmm. which might be a kind of non-threatening way to introduce people to 12 step recovery as a way of life hmm. without requiring them to acknowledge that they are looking for recovery for themselves or for that a you know, family member who needs recovery, something like that. So it's non-threatening, low stakes, maybe just to, as, as a way of introducing recovery ethos. Because I think there are two different ways of even being a recovery-friendly church. One is we're going to be open to those people being with us if they need to, right? We're going to, if people from the retreatment center want to visit, or if somebody needs a referral, we're going to be there. That's one form of a recovery from the church. The other is a church that reflects the recovery ethos. That's a totally different thing. And I think maybe that kind of recovery church needs an infusion of what the recovery ethos is because it's... Mm -hmm. People don't understand it unless they've spent some time in the rooms. It really mm. has nothing to do with alcohol or drugs. And if you read the steps and read the promises, there's nothing about substances in any of them, really. It's a couple right. of mentions. It's all about other stuff. It has to do with powerlessness and surrender and vulnerability and yeah. confession. Exactly. So after all the research, I'm I'm curious, it sounds like you think church can be more like an AA meeting. I'm thinking of your title. You title it, Why Can't Church Be Like yeah. an AA Meeting? But if you were writing a book that had the title, Can Church Be Like an AA Meeting? What would you, what would your introduction be? Or your pithy little sentences you have after many of your chapters? <laughs> uh, maybe. Mm. Yeah, maybe. Mm. So I don't see the path clearly. I think... Maybe it requires a critical mass of people who see the problem and want to change it. Mm. And I think I think the people are out there. I think the number of people who go to church, who have a home group at another church, who don't talk about their recovery in their own church, there's enough of those that if they got serious about trying to change their own congregations, then yes. Mm. But I think there's so much concern about stigma and and fear and whatever else that that they'd be beating their head against the wall that that's not happening for whatever reason mm. 
yeah, maybe if enough people start thinking about why is it that I can't integrate my faith in my recovery? Why is it that I have a good friend who is a classic example. It happens to be an Episcopalian. He goes to 8.30 AA meeting on Sunday mornings, and then he goes to 11 o'clock church with his family. And it's similar experience to what I talk about in the book, right? The highlight of his Sunday is the AA meeting, but he keeps going church for his family because his, mm. he grew up there. Would he like to transform that congregation? Yeah, he would, but I've been there. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's tough. It's, it would take a lot of people with a lot invested in respectability and country club membership and all the stuff that goes along with being appearing pulled together. Mm. So I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. You've written 12 books, I think. And I know I saw the title of two others include The Last Segregated Hour, The Memphis Neelands and Campaign for Southern Church Desegregation. And another was The Battle for Bonhoeffer, Debating Discipleship in the Age of Trump. So it's clear you've thought a lot about the role of the church in politics. And I know 12-step culture is often criticized for being too navel-gazing or too focused on personal piety and lacking a political analysis. So I'm wondering how you think about that criticism as someone who's thought a lot about both the church and politics and about AA. Um, do you feel like that criticism's fair? Or... I think it is probably fair, but I think it's okay because mm -hmm. to take myself as an example, the people that I spend time with on a daily basis think a lot like I do. They're a lot like me, same socioeconomic background, so forth. The only time I ever interact with people different than me, really different than me, is in 12-step meetings. Mm. The only way that I ever encounter any political demographic difference that's meaningful is in... So I think there's... While we keep politics out of recovery stuff, I think it's a great counteragent to the way we segregate ourselves in so many ways. Mm. And I, other people, I think, have feel the same way. I'm just amazed at some of the people I'm friends with. Mm. I know we don't talk about politics, but I know that if it ever came up, we'd be very different ends of things. But it's also a model for how you get along when that happens. Mm. There's a commonality there that bridges us together. I don't know. Have you found that? Yeah, absolutely. I think what stands out is your remark, like, by taking politics out of the picture, it creates, I'm, I connect with people far outside my bubble and I'm yeah. able to connect with them in a very deep way because we're not talking about, there's just no risk of straying into the world of politics. Right. Um, and at the same time, although it may not be from a left-leaning perspective, it may not be getting people into social movements. It's it may be breaking down some of the polarization that is connected to politics. So it's not, it yeah, may be political in its own way. Um, and that does lead to another question. I, I went to Harvard Divinity School. One of the professors there, Sarah Coakley, joked that the, the trinity there was race, class, and gender. 
So I ask this as a faithful HDS alum, but also in genuine sincerity, I wonder how you think about this question in terms of race and class, this question of why can't church be more like AA? Because this whole issue of respectability, like how much is that a white middle-class church going phenomenon? So I'm wondering in your research, did you encounter people of color and working class congregations who were asking the same question? Yeah, I really had in mind churches like the ones I had been in, but I know that there is a criticism of AA and 12-step groups as reflecting the sort of outlook of the men who created AA back in the 1930s. And there's a whole, there's a whole literature about whether these groups are appropriate for women, for instance. Mm. And it's interesting, my wife's in AA and I've asked her about this and she shakes her head like, what? <laughs> mm-hmm. So a lot of people who, a lot of women who are in AA don't really get it, but there are some who think that it's it can't really speak to women. There are some who think it can't speak to people of color. And yet there are, there's, there's lots of, there's evidence, there's research that um, AA works better for some ethnic groups, demographic mm-hmm. groups, than it does for white people. As for churches, I don't know whether, say, black churches are more or less likely to have 12-step groups meeting or have people active in 12-step stuff. I don't have any information on that. Mm -hmm. Thanks. I, I, I ask you this sort of as an academic and also as a ordained Presbyterian minister, you have a, a section in the book called What AA Envy Tells Us About American Christianity. And as a pastor myself, the the story I hear so often about American mainline Christianity is one of decline. Yeah. And I'm wondering what you hear in the envy, like what God may be up to about yeah. something other than just decline that's stirring. Yeah. Yeah. So the decline narrative, I think, is about size, right? So mm. we used to fill this building. There used to be more young people. There used to be more baptisms. But the AMV really isn't about size. It's about quality of life. So people go to an people go to a meeting like I did, and my wife and I did, and there are ten couples there in a Sunday school room. It wasn't about size, and it wasn't about who was there, the movers and shakers. It was about what was going on in that room. Mm. And even though some of the people, some of the people there probably would call themselves Christians, many wouldn't. But the hope, the sense of deep spirituality, the sense of reliance on God, was so palpable that that's what I want in my church. Whether or not we have are able to fill our building or not, I'm guessing most Christians probably would say the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. That the church is never going to have the influence it had in the 1950s, but if it can provide the kind of spiritual sustenance that a group like that can provide, then that's really saying something. And I think mm-hmm. there are movements within the church contemplative prayer and things like that, that fill that same need for people. Mm. But this is something that really brings people in from outside the church mm. and is, is really an amazing even tool of evangelism, if you want to think about it that way, right? 
brings mm-hmm. people inside church doors that that ordinarily wouldn't be there because they're desperate. Mm-hmm. I want to wrap up our conversation just by soliciting your counsel in the book after sharing what's been so precious for you about 12-step meetings. You write, I want to recover church. That is, make it more like AA by reclaiming what the fellowship borrowed from American Christianity nearly a century ago. So for others who share that question, I wonder what advice you have as they go about seeking that reclamation. One thing I did that I really benefited from was I went back and studied the Oxford group. Mm. And the Oxford group is misunderstood and Frank Buckman is seen as naive and, and a weird character, which he probably was, but they had they had a lot of success in transforming people's lives and doing it in a way that sort of bypassed the church structures. And I call them the first parachurch organization because they pretty much did what a lot of later post-war organizations like Campus Crusade, Young Life groups like that did, which was decide to meet in people's homes and get away from all the theological discussions. And they were very successful. And AA really took that approach. Let's take the distilled essence of this message and let's translate it in a way that doesn't turn people away because of language or thoughts that are too complicated or off-putting. And I think what what the Oxford group was trying to do was get back to first century Christianity. And that was the name of their fellowship at first, a first century fellowship. And there's, is that even possible? Who knows? But that was their attempt. And I think AA, to a large extent, took that DNA, that first century Christianity DNA, and infused it back into back into American Christianity in a way, or could, and back into it, it, it took it over, it transferred it, transmitted mm-hmm. it. And when Christians envy AA, I think that's what they're envying, something about themselves that they've lost, mm-hmm. something that is that they recognize, they're looking at a mirror, at a kind of Christianity they see in the New Testament mm-hmm. that they don't see in their institutions and their structures and their hierarchies and their competitiveness and so forth and their mm. focus on numbers. I heard you make a distinction in another podcast, I believe, between Acts 1, first century Christianity and first Corinthians, mm. first century Christianity. I, or maybe it was Bill who was doing it on the podcast. Oh. But can you just yeah. share for readers who may be less familiar or listeners less familiar with the Bible, <laughs> what when you describe first century Christianity, what are you describing? Yeah. So there are two very different versions of first, uh, first century Christianity in those two places, right? Acts mm-hmm. 1 is uh, everything's hunky-dory and everybody's getting along and the disciple, the uh, apostles are, everybody's listening to them and right. sharing everything. They've first given up all their that, possessions, right? They've yeah. given up all their possessions. There are no inequities. Um, it's very idealized. Um, first, first Corinthians is a very different reality Paul is talking mm. about it's all about the problems that are called caused by inequities and, and so mm. forth and conflicts so mm. realizing that acts is a very idealized picture for central Christianity nevertheless it is an idealization that the Oxford group was trying to reach and I think 
what we find in AA is that same sort of idealization. And one of the things Oxford Group says, the, the age of miracles has returned and, and what Bill mm. W. experienced was a miracle. And he saw in Ebby Thacker a miracle. And that was a starting point for him. He said, I, I don't know anything else except I've seen miracles and I'm going to try to figure out what's happened. Wow. Well, that's a beautiful place to end. I feel chills when you talk about the age of miracles has returned. Thank you for your time, Stephen. I'd love to close sure. with a prayer. I'm happy to lead us unless you have one on your heart or mind. No, you're doing great. Okay. Do Let's close as we would with a meeting. We'll do the, okay. the we version of the serenity prayer. Okay. Take a moment of silence. God, Grant us the serenity, serenity to accept the things accept we cannot change, cannot change. courage to change the things we can, things we can. And the wisdom to wisdom know the difference. the difference. Thy will, not mine, be done. Amen. Amen. You can learn about related podcasts, writing, and online prayer groups, and how to support this work at duncanhilton.net.